Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Has the news in 2021 already made it feel like the bottom is falling out of your world? Well, what won't help that is your own bottom falling out of anything, so you may as well pop it into something comfortable, and while you're on the edge of your seat watching the state of things, at least that seat will feel real, real snug. British boxers make classic and crazily comfy underwear and loungewear, from knickers to slippers, dressing gowns to PJs, boxers, face masks and, um, even dog bandanas. Well, dog's got a lounge too, right? British boxers manufacture all their products with minimal waste, all environmentally friendly-like, and pay all their workers properly for creating them too. Basically, they're a properly nice, ethically sound bunch, and my own butt would sing their praises, but let's be fair, no one wants to hear that on a podcast. Check out their range at British-Boxers.com, and as a listener to the Partly Political Broadcast, if you use the code PARPOLBRO10 when you check out, you'll get a sweet 10% off too. Yes, that's right, I'm now in the pockets of Big Pyjama, and honestly, I couldn't be more comfortable. I'll keep this brief, because that's also what they make, so head to British-Boxers.com, because not everything has to be pants in a bad way. Just a few weeks ago on New Year's Eve that Prime Minister and evolutionary leftovers Boris Johnson told the country that 2021 would be the year that we'd see a return to everyday things that now seem lost in the past. Since then, it's become clear that what he must have meant by that was the arduous filling in of customs forms, not being able to travel, a lack of education or healthcare for many, the cries of bring out your dead from a man in a cart rolling down your street, and perhaps most of all, the phrase I told you so. It's been a long time since anyone's been able to say I told you so about national events, and yet already this year feels like event after event are all things that had you told any sensible human type four or five years ago that they might happen, the only response would be, yeah, I thought so. There is, of course, no enjoyment in yelling I told you so through a face mask as the nurses tell you to please leave the hospital as you're really not helping, or at a group of AK-toting fascists who will somehow have you arrested for quashing their freedom while they beat up some journalists. Or, as we'll probably find in years to come, trying to mouth I told you so underwater at everyone that sinks faster than you. Yes, in the same way the Conservative government have recently even managed to ruin the dream of many children that their school will suddenly have to close by making the reality far less fun than it should be, it is now also not fun to be proven right about any of this because there'll never be an apology or acceptance of responsibility from those who've led us here and instead you'll just have to live in the shitty bed they've made for everyone. 
In fact, it's you that will be to blame for not having been optimistic about careering the bus into a tree. And if only you cheered it along as the branches smashed into the windows and through the driver's left eye, then maybe it would have been the best, most world-leading bus crash anyone has ever had. It's your fault it is. Perhaps the thing that will return in 2021 that has long been forgotten is that we'll learn to no longer rely on the news sources that insisted everything was fine when it wasn't, that certain figures were doing all the right things when they weren't, or rely on governance from politicians who could barely be trusted to tell you the time without assuring you that time is whatever you want it to be or that they've made it the best time ever. Meanwhile, they've actually sold the very concept of time to some donors of theirs who've managed to lose it in a quarry and have now replaced it with cheap spaghetti. Welcome back to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that regularly flexes the rules, but only the shutterproof ones as it's not stupid. I'm Tian and Duyeb, and a belated and now mostly redundant Happy New Year to you all. As Chief Medical Officer and man who always looks like he's just been freed after years of being a hostage, Chris Whitty, warns that the next few weeks of the pandemic will be the worst. I say, come on, buddy, let's be fair, no one's at their best in January. Give the coronavirus a few more weeks to get out of the Christmas fog, and I'm sure it'll be back at the top of its game in no time. It is quite something that the only area the UK is currently excelling in on a global scale is coronavirus infections. Well, I suppose everywhere has to specialise at being good at something, don't they? It is, of course, the foreseen and much warned about consequences of the relaxing of rules over Christmas allowing families to mix, as the government mistook the notion of festive spirits as something they had to try and supply with a very high death toll. Hence lockdown three, which in past times might have signalled the end of a trilogy, but chances are likely with current trends, it'll just be a long forgotten sequel in a series of many, with each becoming more and more convoluted and ridiculous until eventually we somehow end up in space. Health Secretary and what if there was a Japanese mascot for back alley surgery, Matt Hancock, confidently insists that this will be the last lockdown, but it's hard not to assume that's because this one will never end, or that the government have already worked out a new name for any future ones, such as National Home Arrest or Countrywide PJ Party. Maybe Hancock will be right though, as there are now three vaccines that have been approved in the UK, and the Health Secretary says every adult will be offered one by autumn. Of course, that doesn't mean they'll get it by then, it just means that the Department of Health will have shouted, Oi, do you want one or what at every citizen before popping their name down on a list by a date in 2035? Seven mass jab centres have been opened up this week because nothing sounds like a more reassuring way to vaccinate against a very transmittable virus, quite like getting people to form really large queues in exactly the same place. And Boris Johnson has said that the army will be helping to roll out the vaccine by using battle preparation techniques. Does this mean they're practising charging at patients with a syringe held like a bayonet? Or perhaps they'll all be dressed in camouflage and leap out at unsuspecting recipients as they walk past a hedge or tree? Or maybe more likely they'll be informed that, like with most battles they participate in, there will be civilian casualties and they'll just have to try and make it look like an accident. There is definitely enough vaccine supply for everyone, insisted Johnson, during one of the four million press conferences we've already had this year, perhaps as part of their efforts to make the country healthier by replacing Joe Wick's workouts and getting us all to jump off the sofa up and down shouting swears at the telly. But a day later, Matt Hancock visited a GP practice in London to mark the start of the AstraZeneca vaccine rollout, only to find that they hadn't actually had their supply delivered yet. But fair play to the health secretary as by being there, he was providing them with at least one prick from Oxford. If all goes well, said the Prime Minister in words that have reassured no one that understands his government's track record so far, 200,000 people could be getting the vaccine every single day from this week, administered within 10 miles of their home. Which is great, as everyone's been advised during lockdown to travel no further than five. 
There is also the problem that some English citizens are refusing coronavirus vaccines unless they are the British one. So I think we should just tell them that none of the vaccines are from this country and insist on pronouncing Oxford AstraZeneca in a variety of different accents to actively reduce the number of racists. Oxford AstraZeneca. Oxford AstraZeneca. Oxford AstraZeneca. Etc. Etc. With the NHS struggling in a way that makes the government concerned that they'll have nothing left to dismantle and underfund, there are calls for an even stricter lockdown to happen, though it's hard to know what that would mean when you're only meant to leave your home for essential purposes, like getting coffees from the cafes that can still open, or popping to Halfords that's somehow still open, or taking your kids to nurseries which are still open, because younger children have a much lower risk of passing on the virus, presumably because they're generally much lower in stature. Though it's more likely that if parents have their toddlers at home, it'll be hard for them to differentiate between their children's nonsensical demands and future press conferences, so that might be the real reason why. Schools, of course, were allowed to open for one whole day, the Prime Minister saying on January the 3rd that there was no doubt in his mind that schools were safe, giving everyone definitive proof that they definitely weren't. And then on the 4th, after thousands of children turned up to class to cough on each other and the teachers, Johnson decided that no, actually they weren't safe, as it turns out children breathe as well, something he hadn't realised on account of never spending time with any. Is it because teachers can see through a lack of preparation and an inability to meet deadlines that the government keeps punishing them? Perhaps it's jealousy that, unlike teaching staff, the public haven't learned a single thing from this government other than what their favourite class is. I mean, the Education Secretary and creature from the dissent, Gavin Williamson, can only be in his position out of spite for the entire sector. Or maybe it's to help teachers see and recognise the potential of a failing student to still have a career in excelling at being shit. As well as having to backtrack on school openings, Williamson also had to retract his promise from just days before that that exams would be happening for English students this summer, because now they're not. But apparently he will put his trust in teachers, not algorithms for the results, which must be the first lesson he's ever learned. With 94% of teachers calling for his resignation, hopefully he'll put his trust in that too and be replaced by an algorithm that can actually problem solve before making all the mistakes first. As always, none of these things are the government's fault, and as Matt Hancock pointed out, some people keep criticising them for moving too fast at making decisions, and I can only assume those people are tortoises. The government are doing everything they can to slow down the rate of infections, such as bringing in controls at airports like they should have done last March. Not so much shutting the stable door after the horse has bolted, as leaving the window open at a glue factory where all the horses used to be. All visitors to the UK will now need to show a negative test before entry to the country, and I presume that means a Covid one, but there's a chance that to fit in with modern British society, they'll just be shown a number of images and have to say that all of them are too woke and should be banned. Luckily, the leader of the opposition and air vent, Keir Starmer, has been holding the government to account brilliantly by being equally vague about what needs to be done, which will frighten them into thinking that he's as qualified to be in 10 Downing Street as Johnson. Starmer made his first speech of the year, despite no one really asking him to, in front of a purple backdrop, maybe in a hope to appeal to former UKIP voters, and some fonts that are uncomfortable to read by anyone who can, again maybe hoping to appeal to former UKIP voters. Starmer accused Boris Johnson of being indecisive before saying there was probably more that we could do, but he couldn't really say what that was. He seems to have found it very difficult to suggest anything at all, but somehow do that very loudly and regularly. Let's recapture the spirit we saw at the start of the pandemic, said Starmer. Well, aside from sounding like a shit ghostbuster, what does that actually mean? We were all miserable at the beginning, or we're still all miserable now. Isn't that enough for you? Starmer was trying his best pre-lockdown to avoid ever saying educational settings should close before the government did, and instead said only that zoos should be closed. Sensible advice, though, as while many do intend to go to a zoo alone, it's only a matter of time before they tell others they can come too. 
Not surprisingly, Starmer didn't say whether aquariums should close as well, as that would have meant a definitive answer on where he stood with schools. Chris Whitty insisted that normal life will return in months, not years, but he didn't say how many months and if it's more than 12. Either way, nothing is going to work if people don't obey the restrictions, and the official government advice is act like you've got coronavirus, because they hate the arts so much they only advocate unpaid roles where you don't even want to get the exposure from them. The Prime Minister says we must guard against complacency, while Matt Hancock has warned that people need to stay in their local area and flexing of the rules could be fatal. So it's a real shame that wasn't the case when Boris Johnson was spotted cycling in Olympic Park, seven miles away from number 10. The Prime Minister was apparently concerned by how many people he saw in that park, so perhaps he was only riding around to deter others from being there. It'd be nice to find something he's actually good at, so I think making him cycle around overcrowded areas may be the job we need him for and would give a much clearer message for people to stay at home than anything else, even if it's just so they could successfully avoid him. Maybe the government are being proactive after all. Brexit has of course fully tumbled in now, along with expected food shortages, even for chains like McDonald's, which has shocked everyone as none of us realised anything they sold could be classed as food. Packages aren't being delivered due to extra paperwork that makes it too complicated, tons of British fish are going to waste as they can't be sold to the EU anymore, and Marks and Spencer can no longer sell Percy pigs in Northern Ireland. But I'm certain many Irish people will be pleased about this, having had to deal with their fair share of saccharine English boars over the years. Gulper eel Michael Gove did warn that there would be significant additional disruption at UK borders in coming weeks, which of course he's been saying all along since like way before the Brexit referendum, you know, when he said things like we'd have frictionless trade and obviously looking back now he just meant it'd be slippy as fuck and as a result be all over the place. Or when Michael Gove said there'd be no shortages of fresh food, it turns out he just meant we'd have exactly the amount he thinks we should have if we're all to starve. (laughs) We should have just known. Leading business groups have said that ministers need to restart trade negotiations with the EU to sort out all the baffling trade rules and regulations, as it will only get worse, and one leading figure has apparently described it as a complete shit show, which is problematic as that just means this government's branding is working and they'll like that. Boris Johnson has asked civil servants to remove references to the EU from thousands of laws to stop Labour reversing Brexit if they win the next election, which gives us an incredible insight into how Johnson's idiot mind thinks something stops existing as long as he can't see it. Someone should really pop a blanket on his head so he thinks it's night time and leave him like that till 2024. The plan is known as Operation Bleach in Whitehall, presumably because it's irritating to humans and used to whiten things. Meanwhile, leader of the Commons and best known for appearing in a photo of the ballroom of the Overlook Hotel, Jacob Rees-Mogg, has shut down the Commons Brexit Committee cross-examining the trade deal with the EU. It is odd that the government is so damn proud of this deal that Johnson said it was his present to the British people, but as soon as anyone wants to see what's in it, they won't let them. It's a bit like the Prime Minister has told us about his best friend who invented chocolate and can do all the skateboard tricks, but when we ask who they are, tells us we don't know them as they go to another school. Another British industry that's been hit by Brexit is music, as the government have rejected a visa-free touring deal for artists in the EU because they don't want EU artists to have the same in the UK. Which is so petty, and once again we lose out, as it'll be much harder to find an umpire band to follow the Prime Minister around, but the EU has a much greater chance of avoiding Ed Sheeran. Bastards. Still, what do you expect from a government who refused to face the music? Across the big pond, there were violent fascists in the US capital, but you know, in a terrorist siege way, as opposed to the Republicans that are usually there. Insisting that face drawn on a sunburned pensioner's stomach, Donald Trump actually won the election, which he definitely didn't, the rioters were dressed like if toddlers had tried to put on their own version of Coachella and proved that rednecks can't even do terrorism without making it look uncultured. Five people died as a result of the siege, including one QAnon supporting Trump fan who apparently managed to tase himself in the balls and die of a heart attack. No doubt a fitting end for someone clearly into shock jock culture. 
It took several hours to get them out of the building, while many staff members and politicians were fearful for their lives. And you do wonder why someone didn't just start a hog roast and play the banjo, which would have lured them out within seconds. Or better still, build a big wall to trap them inside, and then that way everyone would have been happy. Many people question why, unlike the Black Lives Matter demonstration last year and other peaceful protests, the police barely used any force on the people who attacked the heart of America's democracy. But we all know it's because they didn't want to start firing at the far-right rioters and then have the hassle of filling in vacancies at the station the very next week. As the riots took place, it was confirmed that the Democrat candidates won the Senate seats in Georgia, meaning Trump lost the Republicans the House, Congress and the presidency in the true art of the fail. And believing Vice President and character from the original Twilight Zone series Mike Pence could overturn the results, supposedly plotted to take him hostage and chance of hang Mike Pence could be heard at the Capitol. It's a very silly thing to say when Pence has clearly been dead for years already. President-elect and touche turtle Joe Biden told the Trump supporters who started the coup that they should go home, which must have been novel for racists who are so used to shouting that at others. Biden said it was an unprecedented assault on democracy and did not reflect America, which is true as they usually only do that sort of thing to other countries. At the very same time, President unelect and soon to hopefully fuck off Trump incensed the crowd by saying that he called for a peaceful protest but also refused to condemn them and insisted the election was frauded and that he'd had a landslide victory. Which I suppose could be correct if he meant that he was rapidly brought down after years of mass wasting and erosion. Trump was blocked by all social media channels which must have been hard for him as he now has to spend his time on the toilet inside his own head instead. Though if you are missing him being online, you can recreate his Twitter account by shouting something that's never happened while repeatedly headbutting your keyboard as it's on caps lock. It's basically the same. The fact it took Facebook more than four years of Trump inciting hatred, violence and racism to block him makes me wonder if the coup was the reason they banned him or if he was actually just in the process of uploading a nipple pic or something. Much like social media, several Republicans, White House staff, news agencies and in fact even the Prime Minister Boris Johnson have all now decided that maybe Trump is a bad man after all and how could they have known when they were just too busy really enjoying him putting brown children in cages and making police throw tear gas at black people. It is hard to realise the racist violent bigot that you knew and loved also supported some people breaking stuff in a really wealthy old building and I guess that makes you just understand you never really know anyone, do you? The Democrats are making moves to impeach Trump with just days left of his presidency and they're pushing Mike Pence to start the 25th Amendment to remove his power. They waited till after the weekend was over with to begin proceedings, which seems stupid considering that would give Trump two days to do something incredibly silly. But then we have to remember that he barely did anything on the weekdays in the last four years, so they were probably right. Trump is still saying that he's been betrayed and there are concerns there'll be more attacks from his supporters at Biden's inauguration on the 20th. But it's tricky because if they all turn up to the event, even if it's to cause trouble, it'll just upset Trump that old Sleepy Joe had even more attendees than he did in 2016. What might cheer Donny up, though, is that with Michael Gove, Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg all previously saying that he'd be our very close friend after Brexit, there's every chance that Trump will have a job as trade advisor for the British government any day now. Yo! Welcome back, Parpol Brods. Oh, God, I miss it when, uh, you know, back in the day when the Christmas period would just be full of nothing happening and I'd return to this show in January thinking, oh, shit, what can I put in the podcast? There's nothing that's happened. Oh, I miss miss those times. Instead, it's like politics and the news have realised Hollywood and TV have been on halt for a year, so they needed to sort of up their dystopian dramas and cliffhangers with the sort of plot lines that no one enjoys but has to watch anyway. Yeah, at the same time, like lots of Christmas telly always is, uh, much of it seemed like repeats too. Anyway, uh, how are you all getting on? I uh, hope you're dealing with lockdown three all okay if you're in the UK or uh, dealing with whatever else is going on wherever you are. Uh, wherever you are, I've got no clue. Uh, I've been 
largely hibernating. Um, we are all having the fun at the moment of wondering if my agent, sorry, daughter, uh, should be at nursery or not, but really enjoying that she is still going to nursery at the same time. I mean, on the one hand, it doesn't feel safe at all that she's there. On the other hand, I get two and a half days a week where I don't have to hear the same three kids' Halloween songs on repeat. So it's not easy to decide, to be honest. Uh, very, very hard. Actually, to be perfectly blunt, we'd have to still pay for the nursery if we took her out voluntarily. It would still be open, but then we'd not be able to get any work done either. So we don't really have a choice. Thanks, government. And as such, I can override the anxiety about getting COVID a bit by constantly thinking about how I'm not listening to Knock Knock Trick or Treat. Um, never known not hearing music to relax the mind until I got to not hear something I'd hated uh, that I usually have to hear all day long. So there you go. You learn something new every day. I had a lockdown birthday on Saturday. Uh, I'm the third member of our flat uh, to have one now. I'm now the big 4-0, which I thought I'd panic about, but actually it's really nice being the age that the state of things in parenting has made me feel for about three years now. Everyone warned me, like, oh, 40, you'll you'll have to go to bed early. It'll be terrible. Already there, pal. Already been there for quite some time. Oh, you'll be weeing all the time. I've been type 1 diabetic since I was four. So already there. I basically wee all the time. I'm like a giant mouse. Um, I think the main downside, uh, though, of of me being this age is that you're now listening to a podcast by a definitely middle-aged straight white guy and I worry that that is just too new and different for some people there's just not enough of that out there and so something like this may might make listeners sort of wary of tuning in they might not be ready for that but I you know I guess we'll just have to see how it goes uh, we'll see my agent drew me a card for my birthday with a big scribble of my face on it with beard and then loads of dots next to it and exclaimed happy birthday daddy that's you and those are flies that are biting your face so yeah I've been haunted by that ever since parenting is definitely the gift that keeps on giving anyway uh, here we are in what seems like a relatively shit way to start the year and I did really mull over whether it was time for comedy when you know everything seems uh, quite concerning but then I wrote some jokes about it that felt a lot better so hopefully um, that will work for you too I'm fully aware you might have less time for podcasts if you've got kids now at home again or those of you that work in the NHS and other key worker things are just insanely busy with the chaos um, or maybe you just have a need to spend the next few weeks screaming out the window and doing nothing else but look I appreciate you coming back to this show and I hope you'll stick around as it will keep going unless I am plagued by flies biting my face um, in which case I'll at least try to record some of the sound for your enjoyment no idea really what that would sound like probably horrible um, so look I've got plans for guests that will cover all the big things from a few different angles uh, over the next few months but also lots of things that are being ignored due to all the big things so basically things this year on this show there will be things are you excited you should be excited and I've got some things to tell you about in a minute too um, but first a very big shout out and mega thank you to Doug, Richard, James, Christine, Veep somebody, John, Kim, Claire and James for your very very much appreciated donations to uh, the ko-fi.com ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro um, and if you should fancy supporting this show through what looks like a year where it's going to be pretty hard work writing at times if it keeps going like this then please chuck some worthless British pounds at the aforementioned Kofi join the patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or via the ACAR supporter scheme um, um, or send one euro, which I think will be worth about £400 soon, or one dollar, which I think I'll be able to sell as memorabilia after the war. Um, of course, if you can't do that, because really, who can in this current world? Please give the show a nice five-star review with some words about it uh, on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or CastBox or somewhere like that. Or just tell other people to give it a listen. Any of those would be bloody lovely. And hey, we all need lovely things, don't we, right now? Yes, we do. Review the show. Give me money. 
Um, okay, so you might have heard at the top of the show I did an advert for British boxers. Um, and uh, you're thinking adverts on your show, Tiernan, on this anti-capitalist uh, political type show. Um, well, look, I approach them because they're genuinely very lovely, nice people who make things that I like and they are politically sound. Um, and uh, Deborah at British Boxers, who is very, very nice, very kindly agreed to try a little sponsorship trial with this show. And I'm very keen um, to get her and her company more customers because they are an independent good lot who absolutely deserve deserve it um and i do i genuinely i wear their pants uh, and i like them i'm wearing some right now you don't even need to know this no one wants to hear about the state of my 40 year old butt but right now it's incredibly happy uh, in some british boxers boxers uh, that are british anyway so as i said at the top of the show uh, if you go there and use the code parpolbro10 um you'll get 10 percent off any orders and hopefully that'll all work out you and they will be very happy and i may be able to afford to keep doing the show and occasionally blag some pants which is all i want in life i just want to blag some pants and pant blags some pags. Um, the other thing uh, that you need to know about is the live show as uh, part of the Leicester Comedy Festival. It's still going ahead on February the 6th at 4.30pm um, but it's now going to be online uh, and that's going to be a live podcast. Uh, they've asked me to get sort of local campaigners and experts um, to Leicester so I think I've got a few lined up now. It, it's going to be fun. It's going to be this but you'll be able to see my face. Um, they can have up to 500 people watching the stream so if you would like to hear me do the show but also see me um, and join in maybe asking some questions for the guests via the chat function then you can grab tickets at the Leicester Comedy Festival website and I'm going to pop a link in the podcast blurb too. Um, lastly, you might note that at the very end of this show I've dropped the hot pole goss fact for the foreseeable future because, well, it took up way too much of my time writing and researching it every week. Why don't you do one that's easier or less effort, you say? Well, I say, why don't you eat a goose, goose muncher? Well, I will. I will at some point think for a replacement or something. But if you have any suggestions for an end of show bit instead, uh, then send them into all the usual places and in fact some unusual ones if you fancy it. So, uh, first episode of the year, and of course, it would have been stupid not to talk about something I know you're all gagging to hear about, because you're just like, well, we haven't heard about that in ages. Yes, that's right, Brexit. Hey, wait, where have you gone? Come back. No, wait, come back. Look, I just thought while coronavirus is stealing all the headlines, like an attention-seeking, always-wanting-to-go-viral bastard, that it might be good to actually hear what the hell happened with that sneaky, sneaky deal. So, I spoke to Professor of European Law at Cambridge University, Kenneth Armstrong, who explained all in a way that I could actually understand, and goddamn was it appreciated. In the middle, there's some bits you may have missed, or more accurately, might have wanted to miss, but I've put them in here, so tough boobles. Welcome to post-Brexit land, where you can apparently have a cake and eat it, but if that cake's from the EU, then there'll be a hefty customs charge, and it might be stale by the time it reaches you. If you've not been keeping up with the story so far because you've decided to enjoy your life or you're in the government and therefore find it impossible to have a clue about anything that's going on, then let me, like a trade negotiation Craig David, fill you in. As of 11pm on New Year's Eve 2020, Britain finally finished its four and a half year long keeling out of the EU, but only after a deal was struck on Christmas Eve, which Boris Johnson announced as his Christmas present to the country, proving he really doesn't ever talk to his children or he'd know that that'd be a really disappointing gift to open and actually we'd all have preferred a PS5. Of course, according to the Prime Minister, he managed to achieve the impossible, though to be fair he might have been referring to the fact he did some work for once rather than the deal. But while all the sycophants are praising the new beginning for the UK, many others are highlighting that actually this is just another part of the incredibly long ending we're having, as though it's been directed by Peter Jackson and he's basically given up now. Food exporters in the UK are already having trouble selling anything to the EU, many companies have a shortage of hauliers, and there's more red tape than the time Elmo went on a kidnapping spree. 
So even though many of us would like to never, ever hear about Brexit ever again, including most of the people who made it happen, as it'd be much easier for them if we just forgot about it and could blame all complications on something else instead. So while everyone is sick of it, it is important to know if this deal is indeed a thin one or is it just very unwell? Is this it for future relations with the EU or is there scope for it to change in the future? And is this deal the problem or is it more the issue that with Johnson sticking to his journalistic days and only handing in a draft at the last possible minute despite four years of notice that absolutely no one's had a chance to prepare? Most importantly, at 2,000 pages, do I have to read the bloody thing because I really don't have the time and a lot of the wording about trade makes my brain cry. Luckily, uh, no, I don't. As this week, I spoke to an expert in all of this sort of thing, Professor Kenneth Armstrong. Kenneth is Professor of European Law and Director of the Centre for European Legal Studies in the Faculty of Law at Cambridge University. Yes, exactly. If anyone is going to understand the Brexit deal, it is him. So I was very excited that he had the time to answer all my many questions on whether or not this was indeed a good deal, if it's the deal we should be worrying about or just our government, spoilers, always our government, and most importantly, what bits do we actually have to know about apart from where we can still buy Percy Pigs? And no, uh, Kenneth hasn't read all 2,000 pages of the deal yet either, as you'll hear, so I think it's safe to say that I don't have to give up my evenings just to Google what quasi-exclusion from competitive grant award procedures means, and instead can just endlessly flick through Netflix wondering if I'll ever find anything I actually want to watch. I found talking to Kenneth uh, really informative, useful, and in many ways, uh, very, very reassuring. So I hope you will too. Here's Kenneth. Um, okay, Kenneth, uh, first question I've got to ask you today uh, is is the big one, really. And I appreciate that this could be the entire rest of the interview. But is the Brexit deal a good one, right? Because we've heard from Boris Johnson, obviously, that they've achieved the impossible and it's amazing. And uh, I've heard from a lot of people that it's really thin and awful. Um, what's your opinion? Is it uh, a good deal? Would no deal have been worse? I like the idea that a document that is hundreds of pages of long is a thin, thin deal. I think you've got to kind of <laughs> maybe distinguish between uh, is it good that there is a deal from whether it's a good deal? So is it good that there is a deal? Yes, it's good that there is a deal. It means that um, to a certain degree, things would flow more smoothly as of 1st of January, particularly in, in trade terms. And especially in, in respect of the Irish border issue, if there had not been a trade deal in place in which uh, tariffs would then become applicable, then managing that border, which is always going to be difficult, was just going to be even more difficult. So from that point of view, that's, that, that's a very good thing. Is it a good deal? In the end, this deal is about damage limitation. It's about mitigating um a downgrading of the economic relationship between the European Union and the United Kingdom. And this is, of course, the challenge of this deal was how do two parties negotiate something that makes their respective positions worse than they currently are? That's not how trade deals normally work. You normally work on the basis that things aren't fantastic, but you just try and improve your position and everybody's got an incentive to do that. Here, the, 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 the attempt is how do you make this as least bad as you can? while both respect their, their, their red lines, the UK's red lines around about, this has to look like Brexit, this has to look like the UK has left the European Union. And from the EU side, it's about how do you ensure that everything that the EU has done over the last 60 years to create a particular kind of economic and social model, how do you protect that from, from the effects of Brexit? So has it done 
either of those things? Has it sort of worked in the way um, that I suppose the UK or EU were, were hoping that it would? Because, uh, again, looking at people on Twitter of varying degrees of expertise, a lot of the conversation when it first came through was that this benefits the EU a lot more than it does the UK. Is that true? Again, it's difficult to speak about benefit. It's not really benefiting either side. It's, it's just making their situation less bad that, 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 than it would be. I mean, from the from the EU's point of view, I think it wanted to have a, a trade deal with the UK uh, for for economic reasons, but also for geopolitical reasons. It would be bad for the EU not only to have lost a, the UK as a member state, but then not to be able to put in place. Uh, an agreement with it uh, for the future. And of course, that's also true for the UK. It would be bad for the UK not only to have left, but not to be able to do a trade deal with its biggest trading partner, particularly at a time when the the, the global Britain brand uh, is uh, being relaunched, that the UK will be you know, asserting itself on the international stage, doing trade deals all, all around the globe. Well, if we couldn't do a trade deal with the EU, was it really likely that it was going to be able to do really good trade deals elsewhere? So both, both sides had had a certain incentive to, 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 to do this. And I was always relatively confident that a deal would be done although that was that confidence was it was getting stretched as we <laughs> as we headed towards christmas eve but i was still confident that the the stars were aligning to 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 get a deal done because both sides had such a strong incentive uh, to to do it so again i think it, it's a good thing that that there is a deal but the deal itself despite its length and despite um its its breadth is, is a is a difficult deal to really evaluate at this point, and we will be seeing how this is going to unfold over months and years to come. A lot of it is relatively framework, with a lot of powers being delegated to other bodies, other bureaucratic bodies, a, a particular body, the Partnership Council, which brings both sides together, is going to be delegated an awful lot of functions to try and say, well, what did you really mean by this when you when you when you made this compromise and you said you will endeavour to do this or you will cooperate on this, well, what does that actually mean? And that's where that kind of body is going to have to play a big role. And that's where disputes are going to start to emerge. I think this is going to be a very tricky document to manage. And with that in mind, how damaging is the timing of this agreement then? Because, um, you know, with everything that it contains, suddenly a lot of businesses have had to adapt to it. They had days to to get it all in place to be able to trade from the first of January. So, is that is that potentially a bigger problem than what the document contains? Um, that they've had absolutely no time to prepare for this. I, I think it's been a, a huge problem. Of course, the remember that the UK actually left the European Union a year ago, so we had a transition period. And of course, the transition period was about giving both sides time to negotiate this deal. But it was also supposed to be a transition for businesses to to give them certainty, um, you know, throughout um, the, the UK government said, well, it's important that businesses have certainty, we'll give them a predictable path. And of course, there was no predictability. We didn't know if there was going to be any deal, let alone what this deal would look like until seven days before the 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 end of the the transition period so i think for large economic undertakings there there has been a, a lack of clarity as to, as to 
whether there'd be any deal, let alone what the content of that would be. Now, we shouldn't overestimate that too much in that there'll be more formalities in some sectors th than others. And there's also a bit of an irony here that the big financial services sector, which of course is not a major part of this deal, actually had, had greater certainty because it knew from the beginning that it was going to have to get itself sorted out on a different basis. So in fact, the financial services sectors on both the EU and UK side, even though the deal doesn't cover them uh, particularly, have had, had greater clarity as to what was going to happen. So just if you could explain that a bit more, because how does that work? The financial services, they're having to have their own separate agreement that's outside of this deal. Well, both sides have known for a good while now that particularly the UK businesses, the UK financial uh, services sector, was going to lose its right of so-called passporting. In other words, that they would not just be able to, to uh, provide services in the European Union in the same way as it had done during its membership. It knew that it would have to operate on the basis of EU rules. And some of those rules require financial uh, uh, businesses to have an actual presence in the European Union. They could only operate, only provide certain financial services if, in fact, they had an establishment within the territory of the EU. So they've set that up. And that's been there now for actually quite a long time. A lot of the no-deal planning around about you know, whether the UK was going to leave without a withdrawal agreement, for example, uh, already financial services had adapted, already baked in what they thought they were going to have to do if there was no deal. In other words, they'd be operating on, on the terms of um, EU rules. And so they've already made that adaptation. The bigger problem has been for those sectors where, where they don't know what the rules were going to be, where they're going to be uh, something within a trade agreement was, you know, what was that going to look like? And they've had less ability to adapt in advance. And speaking of those areas, I mean, what, you know, what are we, because there's, there's lots of complicated stuff that I absolutely do not understand. Trading agreements is beyond my <laughs> level of uh, of ability. Um, and, and there's lots of things about, you know, Boris Johnson promised there'd be no non-tariff barriers. And, and I've been reading that there will be non-tariff barriers. And I, I don't, I'll be honest, I don't really understand what any of that means. And what I wonder is just for us, the public, what's, do we need to be most aware of what are, what are going to be the kind of significant changes that we start noticing very soon? And are there things that are definitely um, going to be changing quite quickly for us? I mean, one way of thinking about it is to try and step back a little bit and think, well, how has, how has trade developed over the decades? And kind of park EU membership for, for a moment and think, well, okay, from the 1950s onwards, we had this thing called the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, the GATT which morphed into what is now the, 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 the WTO. And there, the big issue was about tariffs. It was about how do you remove the, the imposition of customs duties, tariffs, whenever goods, and it's all about goods, when they, when they, they, they cross borders. And of course, the big imperative has been to try and eliminate and remove those tariffs. And that has been happening on a, on a global scale since, you know, through, through the 1950s onwards. The, the European economic community, as it then was in the 1950s, wanted to push that really further to, to completely have a customs union. So there'd just be absolutely complete elimination of tariffs, plus developing a common external trade policy so that it didn't matter wherever you imported into the EU from outside outside the EU, you just pay one tariff and then the, the goods move freely. So that's yeah, that's kind of your, your sort of baseline. We all thought that the big issue was now about non-tariff barriers. We'd done the hard work in the 1960s 
to remove tariff barriers. And now we're going to move on to the next frontier, which is where the single market developed through into the 1980s to really deal with those really naughty problems around about the imposition of different types of product standards, when you can, how and when you can put different types of good on the market, what your fridge looks like, what size your fridge is, what energy consumption it uses, how environmentally friendly it is, et cetera, et cetera. All of these, once you start having difference, differences in standards there, you then start to create trade barriers. Right, so what does this deal do? Well, it sort of takes us back to the UK's position prior to membership of the European Economic Community uh, at, a, at a point where tariffs had, had largely been eliminated. So we're, we're back. We don't have tariffs. Great. But on non-tariff barriers to trade, those, those different health and safety standards, environmental protection standards, consumer protection standards, the UK has always insisted that Brexit must mean the UK's ability to do what it wants as a sovereign nation state. And that includes the power to develop its own rules. Now, that means that there are potential divergences then between what EU standards are and what UK standards are. And that will then start to create trade friction. These will be non-tariff barriers. Now, the agreement tries to deal with some of that, and that's the big issue around about the, the so-called level playing field. Under what circumstances do EU and UK rules start to diverge over time, and how do you manage that? Now, clearly how it does that is very different from what happened during membership. You had very clear legal rules on whether you could or couldn't diverge. Now we've got a, a lot of bureaucratic processes, a lot of oh, well, you need to tell us if you're going to do this and then we'll set up this meeting and then we will have that today or, you know, whatever. They will have these kind of complex administrative procedures round about that divergence. So will there be tar uh, new non-tariff barriers to trade? Well, yes, because, and going back to, to January of, of 2020, the then uh, Chancellor was telling us in the Financial Times that there'd be a power to diverge. There would be new non-tariff barriers to trade. The question is, how do you manage that? And this agreement manages that very differently from how the, that was managed during EU membership with all sorts of potential for, for not just trade friction, but also then political friction between the EU and the UK. And I guess a lot of that affects us exporting things probably more than importing in a way, does it? Because, you know, it means that we can't send things over that now breach health and safety for example health and safety standards in the eu if we decide to change and we allow things to have much higher voltage and you know potentially contain uh additives or preservatives that are no longer you know okay there that then will, will stop us being able to export them without some sort of uh you know uh some uh you know some sort of change in in our agreement so i mean i you're absolutely right. For, for companies based in, in, in the UK exporting to the EU, it is now absolutely clear that they will need to have their goods compliant with EU standards. Now, of course, given the, the UK's long membership of the European Union and given that we, at the point of, of departure, retained all of EU law as a matter of domestic law, in fact, we have, at the end of the transition period, at the end of, of December 2020, full alignment anyway. So companies in the UK who've, who have got big export markets to the EU are already used to dealing with EU rules. So from their point of view, what matters is what happens if, if, if those rules change over time and what happens if UK rules then start to diverge from those rules. Now, one thing that may happen is that companies that have a large EU presence, uh, although they're based in the UK, 
will simply continue to align with EU rules come what may. As long as those rules will also meet UK standards, they will nonetheless be um, complying with EU rules in order to simply simplify their production processes. The problem comes what happens if the UK starts to introduce a different type of rule where compliance with EU rules isn't going to cut it in terms of compliance with UK rules. And that's where you're going to start to see then more friction, duplication of production lines, etc. And that's going to be a politically very difficult thing for the UK to manage because, you know, trade industries lobby. Of course, they're going to lobby around these things. They're going to lobby hard to try and make things as, as similar to as they are now, provided that remains in their own interest, that that, that, that will be to, to, to their advantage. So partly the issues are about what's in legal texts like this deal. And, but partly it's also about economic behavior. What do big market actors do when they, they look at this, this regulatory environment and where they, they already comply with EU standards as a way of getting access, not just to EU markets, but indeed to other markets. And there's an American academic called Anu, Brad, Anu Bradford at Columbia who talks about the so-called Brussels effect, which is how do you explain why companies that aren't based in the EU nonetheless comply with EU standards? And it's because that becomes a way of accessing not just the EU market, but also other global markets where compliance with those standards will ensure market access anyway. And you might see a similar sort of thing going on here. I think it's more complex in the UK, um, which is why I, 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 I call my, uh, um, my, my the project that I'm working on at the moment, the Brexit effect. The Brexit effect is partly aspects of the Brussels effect, but the, the Brexit effect is more complicated precisely because the UK already has all of this EU law in its domestic legal system anyway. And therefore, the question is, how is that going to change over time? I, I mean, is, in an ideal world, were we to sort of improve all our standards, if they have better environmental standards, better health and safety standards, I'm assuming it probably wouldn't be that much of a problem because we'd meet a lot of the EU requirements in doing that. Is, is it more of an issue if we degrade our standards and become less safe and become less environmentally friendly and there's less workers' rights? Is that where, I'm guessing that's where the issue will, will come in? And that's why the EU and the UK have agreed what are so-called non-regression clauses in the agreement. That is to say that there is a floor level of, of um, standards uh, below which they will not go. And in fact, that they will strive to increase uh, levels of protection and increase, uh, make standard, standards higher. I think the other thing to keep in mind in terms of what are the big push and pull factors on what's going to make things converge and diverge is that the EU and the UK are also participants in global standard setting forums. And therefore, actually, both will remain in sync with one another to the extent that they are both implementing, if you like, a higher level agreement, uh, an international standard that both will then uh, have to comply with. And that will, in a sense, keep them aligned. And there's bits in, in this agreement which, which talk about the UK and the EU together jointly cooperating in these international forums to develop standards. So it may it'll be interesting to see then how that works of how and when the UK and the EU actually end up cooperating together because they have both have an incentive to try and make their way of doing things an international way of doing things. So 
in a sense, the psychodrama of Brexit has locked us into this sort of psychology in which this is a zero-sum game. One has to win and the other has to lose in order for this to be in some way real. But actually, I don't think that's how this is going to work out uh, necessarily. I think there will also be opportunities for cooperation because it will actually be in both their interest to do it. It is, I have to say, it's so nice talking to you because you make it all sound a lot less stressful. And uh, I think all the rhetoric and the hyperbole about it has made it really, as you said, like zero sum, just, oh my God, have we won, have we lost? And this sounds a lot more straightforward and at times quite just uh, heavy in terms of um, terms and conditions and the things that most people will go, oh, I'll just leave that to get on with itself. Um, But, you know, then I... I Life, okay. life, I mean, I tend to think that most people's lives are like this. Most people's lives are neither the sunny uplands or, you know, the, the world's fallen in. It's going to be, there'll be days where it'll be a few more like one, days where it'll feel more like the other, as I think we're all experiencing um, during, during the, the pandemic. So maybe Brexit is more like the, the pandemic than we think. There'll be periods where we feel it's getting better and there'll be periods where we feel it's getting worse. And that's why, in a sense the the doing of this deal is really just the beginning of another phase it's not the end of of the brexit drama it's just going to be another phase of it and that drama is not always as bad or as good as you think it's going to be it's also like the pandemic and that both seem to have gone on forever <laughs> ever and ever uh longer than they should have done uh thanks to the government anyway what i which i wanted to bring back to what i mentioned earlier which is simply that you know what then are we, uh, what are the general public going to notice that, that changes? And are we, considering our current circumstances where we can't travel anywhere anyway because of the pandemic, we can't, you know, most shops are closed, a lot of trade isn't happening, a lot of industries aren't doing well because of the pandemic anyway. Are we going to notice much of Brexit's effect immediately? Has, has the pandemic been a sort of rather awful boon for uh, the effects of Brexit in, in, in hiding what its effects will be? I think that there's two kind of interesting things there. One is that, um, you know, I think for 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 someone, particularly those for whom leaving the, the the European Union was not the right thing to do, there was a sense in which the disaster of Brexit had to come true in order then to um, help validate that that view. And of course, it's impossible to tell what that looks like when you've had such an enormous economic shock that has come from the, the pandemic. The economic shock of Brexit will yet to be to be to be fully seen but in many ways it's being being masked by by the the, the economic consequences of, of the pandemic which is of a scale that I, even yet we're still to, to completely see it realized but the other thing that i think is interesting is in a way the pandemic um brexit even the very disruptive politics of the last four or five years becomes quite normalized and we, we've kind of we're, we're normalizing everything in a way in which we realize that the sun still sets it rises in the morning we get up and things carry on so we didn't suddenly notice a massive change when the the uk left eu in january 2020 and you might say well yeah that but with a transition period with kind of shadow memberships of course we weren't going to see any changes okay but then we finally exit the transition period. The New Deal uh, is in, uh, starts to come on stream. But again, there's no big immediate change and life carries on. And so in a way, it's quite hard, I think, for us to try and get our head around some, some of all of this because everything becomes normal. 
in a way, everything doesn't matter how strange things become. We immediately normalize them. And that's quite hard then to get a bit of critical distance onto what we should think of as normal and okay and normal and yeah, but that's still not okay. And at what point do we get to, to a situation where where things we want things to get better? And how do we make things better? And how do we think we go about making things better? What what's the kind of politics that we believe in that we'd say, okay, in 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 the new politics of being outside the EU, uh, how do what do we want? Actually, it's that bigger existential question of, of Brexit, I think, which is, but what did you want this to be? What did you want this to mean in terms of your real lives? And maybe that leads to a third point, which is actually what it's showing is how little EU membership actually impacted on some things that were really part of normal day-to-day life. Whether your kids went to a decent school, whether you could get a GP appointment, whether you had potholes in your the, the road outside your house, these weren't things that actually the EU had any direct impact upon. These were always matters for for national governments to do, and most people's inter- most people's sense of their their day to day life revolves around things that, which aren't to do with trade, which aren't to do with you know um, how easy it is to sell you know your artisan um, organic olive oil um into a, a, a french market you know that's not necess- that's that's true for some people but not for for lots of others and in a way it's highlighting that brexit cannot be everything you know in terms of that sense of people's concerns about what was happening to their day-to-day lives their control over their own lives their their economic well-being uh, etc Brexit in and of itself doesn't change that. It's always about domestic government's priorities. And EU membership didn't really impact substantially in all circumstances on some of those big priorities round about health spending, education spending, public infrastructure, etc. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we'll be back with Kenneth in a minute. But first, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the only news at all in the world right now was everyone having COVID-19. Brexit meaning lorry drivers can't have sandwiches and things in America being exactly as we all thought they probably would be. I forgive you. There you go. See, uh, it's all okay. I've mainly been watching Korean supernatural comedy action dramas and assuming that I wasn't missing anything news-wise either. But as per always, there have actually been many, many other things going on. Some of them you don't need to know about, obviously, such as a suspected human foot in a field in Gateshead turning out to actually be a potato. Uh, You don't need to know about that one, even though it is absolutely gutting that no one made a potato joke about it. Criminal. Criminal. There are, though, some things in UK politics news I thought you might need to know. Um, So here is a very quick middle bit, an FYI, ICYMI, because IYKY, YKWIM. Yeah? Yeah. Way back in April, Gavin Williamson reassured headteachers that the government would provide free devices to disadvantaged kids who needed them for homeschooling during the pandemic because around 9% of families, or 1.78 million children, don't have access to any of that stuff, which means they're cut off from learning and also their parents don't get any peace and quiet by giving them the iPad, sitting them in a corner for nearly two hours and having a cup of tea in the resulting silence. Sorry, I probably gave far too much away of my parenting skills there. Anyway, I know what you're thinking. Did Gavin Williamson actually provide them with old Donkey Kong LCD games or something? Was the term devices used because they all got can openers or something one of Williamson's school pals designed that makes eggs into the shape of a knee or something? Was there an algorithm that means kids in private schools all got free Teslas while all the other children were given wooden tic-tac-toe kits? Well, no, actually, uh, laptops and iPads were delivered, just as you can probably guess to nowhere near as many kids as were promised. What you can probably also guess, because really, whoever is writing this season of the British government just keeps reusing old storylines and we're all getting bored of it now, is that they gave nearly £1 billion of contracts to a company to do the pewter providing, and that company happens to be owned by a Conservative donor, Sir Philip Hulme, who's given the Tories over £150,000 in donations. Computer Centre were most recently given two contracts worth £12.4 million to hand out 59,900 devices, but there have already been complaints from some schools that the laptops they've received are so low in spec that they'd be more useful propping up a table. It's not known yet whether the contracts were put out to tender properly, and the Department of Education said they were rewarded simply on the basis for children to receive the support they need as soon as possible. Though he didn't specify if that's physical support by standing on the machine in order to reach things, because it's not very useful for anything else. These contracts add to the now £15 billion of money given to the private sector to supply things to the public sector during the pandemic, on top of the £22 billion for the test and trace and the half a billion for PPE, a large number of which have all been handed to companies with direct links to the Conservative Party. I'm really starting to wonder if it's the public that need to do the social distancing. Bees are bloody great, aren't they, what with the honey and the tiny strokeable fur coats? Yet the government have just authorised the use of a pesticide that was banned under EU law and is believed to kill off all our buzzy chums. The pesticide is for use just on sugar beet, which is not just the name of my 90s ska band, but also what we all get our sugar from here in Blighty. 
Environmental campaigners are understandably livid because, you know, without bees, they don't pollinate flowers, and then we have even less food, making me wonder if the only policy Boris Johnson ever cared about was his one to make Britain lose weight. However, uh, it's not as clear-cut as the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs being some sort of insect bounty-hunting Bieber fet. Climate change is really messing up crops, and because last winter was very mild, aphids survived it in crazy numbers, stormed all the beet crops and poisoned them with beet malaria. Sugar beet is a non-flowering crop, so one bees aren't all that bothered about, and by putting the neonicotinoids on them, it may well save them from aphid slaughter. A number of other European countries have been using it for that single crop use too, and if farmers in the UK didn't, it would pretty much kill our sugar industry, and then we'd have to import that sugar from elsewhere, like the EU, and then, uh, you know all the rest. However, neonicotinoids are not good, and they can spread from the crops into the water, which can then affect bees elsewhere, and also birds, and who knows what else. But this is meant to be a temporary use, so it's whether or not money will be in place to allow it to be replaced by farmers using better, less polluting methods as soon as, or if the Conservatives are doing this because actually they just want to kill bees because their hard-working ethics really show them up in comparison. We'll just have to wait and see, but knowing this government, I'm sure there'll be a sting somewhere. Last year, during the first wave of the pandemic, the government ended homelessness pretty much overnight as part of the Everyone In scheme, which made us all wonder, oh, well, why hadn't you done that before then? About 15,000 rough sleepers were given shelter, which, according to The Lancet magazine, would have prevented around 21,000 infections and nearly 300 deaths. And also, you know, let people sleep somewhere under a roof for a bit, which just is a really nice thing to do. The funding only lasted a couple of months though and the Conservatives realised it was ruining their reputation so by June it was everyone out again and they insisted that they were giving the funds to local councils to house people but it really wasn't enough to do very much of that. The government are not bringing it back this time even though young people sleeping rough in London is at its highest, deaths among homeless people in England and Wales are very high and 70,000 households have been made homeless during the pandemic so far and on top of all that it's really fucking cold. The government did promise that no one should be made homeless as a result of the coronavirus, but I think they assume that everyone is like housing minister and sponge cake Robert Jenrick and has four of them each so can afford to lose a couple here and there. A ban on evictions has been extended but it hasn't affected the 200,000 plus families approaching their local councils for help with homelessness or all the hidden homeless or since June those are already rough sleepers. What would be best of course is just if the government housed everyone again because it didn't really seem all that hard last time but of course they can't do that because <laughs> there's no good reason. I'm sure Robert Jenrick could spare a home or 12. Come on Robert. Oh, and lastly, there's been a tiny cabinet reshuffle. Uh, The only bit of it worth noting is that Saad Goomba, Alok Sharma, is no longer business secretary and is now fully in charge of the climate change conference, so he can now just screw that up instead of all business. Instead, he's been replaced by Kwasi Kwarteng, known not just for looking like a cartoon fish, but also co-authoring a book called Britannia Unchanged, alongside everyone's unfavourite rat pack, Pretty Patel, Liz Truss, Dominic Raab and Chris Skidmore, who you might not know, but let me just say his surname really, really sums him up. The terrifying hardline free market book got all angry about high taxes and too much regulation while being rarely factually correct about anything. And the big controversy about it was a bit about how British workers are the most idle and lazy in the world. And they didn't just mean the Prime Minister either. Still, there's now four of the five authors of that in the Cabinet, which suggests that that is pretty much the policies that are going to be going forward. On the plus side, I guess it also means, though, that we know there's a handful of people in there who can definitely read. And now, back to Kenneth. Do you think then that one of the big changes that we're probably going to see from all this is that, you know, the British government can't blame the EU for things anymore and that we perhaps we get a greater understanding of what responsibility is theirs and what responsibility was the EU's and 
um, you know, perhaps the, the politics that are, that are more important or, or should should be more important to us? I think that's right. I mean, it's it's clearly been the case. And there wasn't just the UK government. I think every EU government has done this, which is when, when things go wrong, it's very easy to blame Brussels. And when things are, are, are go, go well, it's all about, you know, domestic policy and, and how good, good governments are. And that's just the nature of a kind of two-level game of, of, of what happens when, you, when you're a, a member of, of a bigger international organisation. Of course, then, when things are then brought back home, uh, then then there are levels of political accountability and responsibility that then flow from that. And I suspect that, and this is, again, where the pandemic is an interesting part of this conjuncture of, of, of forces. You know, people are really thinking about the effectiveness of government. How effective is government in managing the economics of the pandemic, the, the, the health crisis, the rollout of the vaccines, test and trace, et cetera. And I think this is the biggest challenge really for, for Prime Minister Johnson is that he doesn't have anywhere to hide on, on any of this anymore. And although this isn't directly related to EU membership, nonetheless it does say, okay, if we are going it alone, how effective do we think our institutions are? How, how accountable do we think they are? Do we do we trust them? Do they uh, do they respond to to our needs? And of course, in the context of, of of the United Kingdom's devolution settlement, we see different parts of government doing different things in different locations. And again, that's quite exposing because it does then say, well, is England more effective than Wales? Is Scotland more effective than England or, or, or whatever? And that then creates different kinds of pressure. So I think you're right. When you take away the external level of it, you, there's no just easy blame shifting. But within the, the domestic politics of the UK at this point, I think the UK government ends up being really quite exposed in terms of how well it's doing. And my own feeling is that if this vaccination program doesn't go, go well, at, from in terms of, of a big political hit domestically, that, that's the big political hit for, for this government. Is, I mean, one, one of my concerns uh, about everything, uh, I think particularly regarding this government, is, you know, the, the worries of what a new sovereignty means. That the, I, I sort of always like the reassurance that there was... Um, that, that Europe was kind of there as well. Should things go wrong here, as a, as a next step of someone to refer to, is is that something you think that that should we should be concerned about? You know, is is uh, are there elements of this that are a sort of power grab in a sense um, by by the British government? I think the, the the sovereignty aspect is very very interesting because rhetorically, of course, it's been. Um, used a lot to talk about the, the need to restore the sovereignty of the UK. The UK government has even legislated to enshrine the principle of sovereignty. It's quite interesting that if this principle is so strong, why do you need to enshrine it again in law? Shouldn't that just be the kind of constitutional fun, fundamental? But but more than that, you know, the sovereignty of parliament is exposed itself hugely in terms of this trade deal. You know, we we have a very big, significant new economic relationship with the European Union enshrined in a legal text, which our sovereign parliament gave legal effect to 
through legislation agreed in one day with no scrutiny whatsoever of any real, you know, meaningful sense. You know, when you look back at the the, the Lisbon treaties, the, the Maastricht treaties, even our original treaty uh, of membership, where the legislation to give effect to those, you know, had, had you know, 30 odd days of, of scrutiny in Parliament. I think the, the, the shortest was maybe about 15 days, where... Okay, okay, a lot couldn't change, but at least parliamentarians had the, had the ability to, to explore and, and talk through uh, what this would mean. None of that really happened on, on, on that day when Parliament was recalled to, to push through this legislation. And that, that then means the sovereignty of Parliament looks very thin. It looks procedural. It's simply saying government can control Parliament to enact the legislation that government wants. That doesn't speak to the sovereignty of Parliament in the sense of the fount of democracy, the the, the body of deliberation in, in which good people come together to deliberate affairs of state and come to, to conclusions. Now, of course, that that's idealistic, but I, 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 in as much as I think the government is going to be exposed, I think our constitutional order is now massively exposed as a consequence of Brexit. And that's partly about the devolution issues. But even if it wasn't about the devolution issues, I simply feel that our constitutional apparatus does not feel fit for purpose for 2021. Yeah, it's it's sort of. Uh, I'm, I'm very interested to see now they've got what they want. What happens next? There's something uh, very interesting about how this might play out. I mean, on. One of the things I want to ask is probably a very simple question because I think this has all felt so final. And again, you know, Brexit deal's done and that's it, it's done. And we had get Brexit done for the past year. And it's, you know, this this big thing is going to happen uh, and everything's going to change, which hasn't changed that much as we've spoken about. Um, are, are there elements of this that can be changed over time? Like this isn't final, is it? In, in terms of nothing's ever final. I mean, I'm not just talking about rejoining. Can the deal be reworked? Can we come to another agreement with Europe in, say, 10 years time? Is... Is there the possibility that that this is is fluid, or are we now setting this for, you know, forty, fifty years like we were with the original uh, agreement? So, uh, and at, at the kind of the, the narrow technical side of it is that this document is relatively framework in some respects, and a lot of it will be changed and elaborated over time. Now, that in itself raises certain democratic challenges in that the power to amend this agreement will be done you know, by a, a partnership council bringing together both the EU and the UK. But, you know, much like the deal itself, done behind closed doors without a, a high level of transparency. So I think there, there are certain kind of issues around about that. But I think that's not really the question. I mean, the question is, is really about the, the deeper underlying position of where, where do the EU and the UK end up over time on this? I don't see the UK ending back up in the EU anytime soon. That just doesn't seem uh, at all likely, not least because it is clear from the Labour opposition's position on this is it's not entertaining that idea. And insofar as UK politics is a battle between Conservatives and Labour, fundamentally, then there is oddly a consensus that EU membership is just off that that's that's not going to happen is there is some middle ground um i don't see that either 
I think it will be about trying to upgrade this this agreement. Uh, if any political party thinks that that's that that's uh, in the UK's interest, so you might see some more of that over over time. But I think the fundamental relationship has been reset, and and this is the status. This is the new normal for the foreseeable future. Of course, that doesn't necessarily address the internal constitutional issues and how that may play out. And of course, if there if there ends up being another referendum in Scotland on on independence, and if that leads to a, a result in favour of independence, then of course, different parts of the UK are going to end up uh, in different relationships with the EU. And of course, Northern Ireland is 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 itself in a different relationship with the EU because of because of the, the Northern Ireland Protocol. So I think the things that will change over time are are much more to do with the internal domestic constitutional shift around of, of where of where that settles. Um, but I, I think just in terms of the bigger picture, the UK is not rejoining the European Union in my lifetime. And you've had to follow all of this now for four years, and and obviously a lot a lot before with your you know specialising in, in European law. Are you are you relieved? It's, do you feel a little bit of relief? Like finally I can have a breather now, or are you just expecting the next year to be as as turbulent, as exhausting as uh, as it has been? Oh, and I think it's going to be worse in many ways. I, I think what I'm I, the one thing I think I'm rel- relieved seems like an odd word but the one thing that i'm finding i think at least slightly easier about where we are now is actually we have something concrete um i am slowly we making my way through the agreement i've only got to page 90 which feels terrible (laughs) because there are several many hundred pages to go but i am i'm simply reading it page by page carefully because i've decided i need to really get a sense of what this is about, not just in terms of detail, but in terms of balance, how it feels, what's what, what the trends within it, et cetera, et cetera. But at least there's something to go on. Whereas I think over the last four years, it's been, there was a kind of interesting moment at the beginning where it was all terribly exciting and, you know, there was lots going on and, you know, the, the vain academic who is then approached by the media for comment, you think, oh, you know, my, my life actually has some meaning it finally, you know, um, and, you know, there is there is that. But then it just becomes a kind of ridiculous, um, all, always responding to the last twist and turn. And anything you write almost becomes pointless within days because some, we move on to something, something else. And... And I think the, the the kind of the worst type of academic commentary is this is the kind of commentary the things that really know it's got an inside track on something and and almost none of us had inside <laughs> tracks on any of this unless you really were somebody who was embedded in Brussels you know if you and and you're you're a proper journalist you know, you know Tony Connolly for example has done an amazing job um, for for RTE and you know uh, through his his twitter feed and telling us what's happening because he knows stuff but most of us as academics who've been sitting at home trying to you know work out what's happening we we don't have that inside track and i think what is really preferential about where we are now is that people like me should actually be able to do our job properly 
which is we sit back, we look at what's, what is there, what there is to, to see, try and work out what we think it means, and also try and get some distance on it and trying to work out, well, what's the biggest, what's the bigger significance of all of this? Uh, and so from that point of view, it's 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 not any less busy than it was, but at least it feels slightly more satisfying that there is there is something to to really talk about meaningfully rather than just the kind of breathless responsiveness to the the latest twist. Yeah, and that, turn. that must be quite really. I mean, I I found it very disheartening that those weeks and weeks pre Christmas of oh, there's not going to be a deal. Oh, there will be a deal. There won't be a deal. And I thought if I'd just gone to sleep for three weeks and woken up at the end, I'd still get the same result without any of the stress of <laughs> the last few, you know, weeks. I mean, we, could, we could have just ignored all of that. <laughs> We'd still be in the same exactly, place. exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think there, there there will be a lot to talk about over the over the next uh, well over the next years. I think as as this deal's implications become fully understood, and as both sides try and really work out what they what they thought they meant when they said said various things, and it will continue to evolve. Um, over time. Well, thank you for talking to me today. I found it very reassuring talking to you. It's it's so nice to hear, just, just speak to someone who understands it a bit rather than uh, just every single headline telling you to be panicked about all the food disappearing or that this is the best thing that's ever happened to us. Um, it's nice to get a sort of um, just reasoned view on it all. Um, and I wanted to ask you that apart from yourself um, and uh, your Brexit Time website and of course your Brexit Effect project, um, who else and and where else should listeners read up for clear information on on the Brexit aftermath? I know you mentioned Tony Connolly there um, from RTE. I wondered if if you've got any other people that you specifically go to for information. I think one of the really interesting things about Brexit has been that in some ways information is more transparent, and that there are you can tap into expertise that you would not otherwise uh, easily get hold of. And, and Twitter has been has been good from that. Uh, Peter Foster from Telegraph is a fantastic journalist. Uh, his Twitter feed is very, very useful. Um, lawyers, there are lots of different lawyers who write uh, on this. Um, Steve Pears, for example, is very, very active, has his own blog. Um, of course, one of the difficulties is that some of this... D- has divided in ideological lines um, on the academic side. Some people are very, very, ang- still remain very, very angry, and therefore they, they are, what one gets from from their their, their um, Twitter presence may, may be maybe somewhat different. And um, of course, in the UK, the the the, the UK in a changing Europe um, program has been uh, giving um, easy to read, quite accessible information to, to people. Um, for a more detailed take on what this means for government and how government is responding. The Institute for Government in the UK has done a really fantastic job in uh, in, in doing work both on Brexit and on, on the kind of changing nature of government in the UK. And I think their reports are, are accessible, but also with a level of detail that is very informative. So the Institute for Government, I think, is a good place to to, to look. Um, there's also a, for, for those who are interested in the, the law of this, the EU Relations Law blog um, set up by Moncton Chambers in London it has been developing more concise legal commentary. It, it, it's aimed more for practitioners, um, but there may be things in there that, 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 that people 
if they've got a particular interest in a particular area, for example, might find things in, in that that will that will help them, or at least direct direct them to other sources of information that they can then use. So, um, there is a, there's plenty out there. It's I guess the case is is always how you navigate the the flow of information that, that's out there. And as I say, I think particularly amongst the academics on this. The divisions between leave and remain were as evident on the academic side, probably more um, biased towards the remain side. And for some, that's going to make their interpretation of events may, may, may be somewhat different. And that elusive search for balance uh, is, is still there. Thanks so much to Kenneth for the time to explain all of that to me. Um, it's just damn useful to have someone who actually understands these things to clearly explain past all the headlines and noise. So that now I'm only panicking a bit instead of a lot about Brexit, that is. I'm still riddled with horror at absolutely everything else. You can find Kenneth on Twitter at Prof K A Armstrong. Uh, his website and blog about all things Brexit is at brexittime.com. He can usually also be found at the Faculty of Law at Cambridge University, but obviously he's not there right now because, well, everything. And I'll post a link in the podcast blurb to the Moncton website he mentions and their recently published Brexit and EU Relations Law Toolkit, which Kenneth has contributed to if you fancy a look at that as well. I've bothered a lot of people to come on the podcast this year and very slowly some are getting back to me. So in the meantime, and also less mean kind of time, if you can think of anyone I should be firing questions at right now or a subject I still haven't managed to cover on this show because God damn it, there's loads, then you can drop me a line at Paul Paul Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or you can email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com or any other method of contact you fancy, unless you're Donald Trump, in which case, <laughs> you can't do any of them because you're banned. <laughs> and I won't accept letters written in crayon. For the rest of you, as always, probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you absolutely tons for returning to the show and listening to it once again. Um, if you do enjoy any of the noises that occur, please do give the show a lovely five-star review on one of them podcast apps. Donate to the Kofi, Patreon or Acast supporter sites. And most of all, just tell someone you love to give this podcast a try. Unless the person you love is me. Uh, I mean, I understand, but I'm already here. I'd much prefer chocolates or a nice meal or some rock-hard cash. I demand serious romancing. None of this podcast recommendation shit that's good enough for the plebs. I mean, sorry, sorry. Kindly potential listeners. Oops. Ah, oh, cock that up. Ah, oh, well. Ah, oh, well. Mercy Buku to Acast, my brother, last skeptic, for all the beats and bleeps. Cat Day for the linear liner notes and to Katie Coxall for all the art stuff. This will be back next week when Donald Trump gets banned from my fitness pal but absolutely doesn't notice. Bye! This week's show was sponsored by The Beginner's Guide to Acting Like You've Got the Coronavirus, featuring tips on how to convince others you've got varying degrees of the illness from asymptomatic, where you'll occasionally say that you're not sure if you've got it or not, but you reckon it's fine to walk too close to everyone at Sainsbury's anyway. All the way to method acting skills you need to convincingly cough to death while still typing it's all a hoax onto Twitter. Acting Like You've Got the Coronavirus for amateurs, professionals, or just those of you who've completed Netflix and need a new challenge. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.